0: Up to Mark chapter two, and we are not going to get again all the way through this lesson, lesson number twenty-four. I don't know how in the world I used to do it years ago, when I would get I covered actually covered two parables and the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, of Bethesda last time. Which there's no way I can do it nowadays. So this is number twenty-four is going to be two lessons. This morning we'll look at the um, at the two parables, and then next week, Lord willing. We're all still here. We will discuss the, um, the miracle of the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, which again, just like the conversion of Matthew, is worth a whole lesson, so I don't, I don't begrudge this. So anyway, let's begin. Uh, as we have been looking at the Lord's authentication of himself as both God's sent Redeemer and um, Revealer, the long-awaited Messiah King, the seed of the woman, the savior of the world, we have seen that already in his public ministry he has been performing all kinds of miracles. And these miracles have demonstrated both his supreme authority and power over all realms of life, such as over nature, over Satan, and the demonic spirit world. We have seen his power over diseases of all kinds, including the cleansing of leprosy, Um, all kinds of handicaps, and we've also learned by both his works and his words that he demonstrated his absolute authority to preach as he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching, and also to forgive sins. Now, continuing with this same thread of thought, we find in our lesson today and in next week's lesson and in the next two lessons after that, that he also demonstrated to the nation of Israel that he possesses the ultimate authority and and power over man's traditions. And this will include especially the Jewish fanatical traditions regarding the Sabbath, which we'll really get into in the last three uh, lessons of our book number one. They were fanatical about the Sabbath day. Now, our outline on this 24th lesson in our Life of Christ series is entitled Tackling Tradition. And it consists of three parts. We're going to... Just this morning, look at the first two parts. We'll be looking at the Lord's first two recorded parables. We have not yet heard him teach by parable, but this morning we will look at his first two parables, the parable of the new cloth patch and the parable of the new wine pouch. And then next week, we will look at part three. By the way, the three parts are entitled Bewildered Inquiry. And that's when John the Baptist's disciples ask the Lord why his disciples don't fast. And then we'll look at those two parables under bridegroom's illustrations. And next week we'll look at Bethesda's invalid. Okay, so let's begin by reading Mark 2, Mark 2, and we'll look at verses 18 to 20, the bewildered inquiry. It says in verse 18, And the disciples of John, that's speaking of John the Baptist and his disciples, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast. And they come and say unto him, unto Jesus, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bridegroom fast And by the way, over in Matthew's account of this, it says mourn. Can they they mourn or fast? While the bridegroom is with them, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. Last week's lesson ended with Jesus and his disciples Enjoying a great banquet, which was hosted by who? Matthew, who was formerly yeah. Levi the publican. He, his name, and Warren Wiersbe says that uh, that was probably when Jesus changed his name. Was when he called Levi, and Levi followed him. He probably received his name change at that point in time. Put this in a special place, but I don't know where. Over there. Okay, we'll try that. And many we we read that many publicans and sinners had also been invited to that feast by Matthew, and as a consequence, many of them followed the Lord Jesus. That was in Mark 2.15. Also, however, as a consequence of that fruitful feast, the religious rulers of Israel fussed and fumed that Jesus could not possibly be the Messiah of Israel because of the type of low-life sinners he was associating with. Of course, you know that they had already determined, they had already decided in their hearts that they were going to reject him, and they were simply looking for all kinds of convenient excuses to justify their rejection of him. Because of their own prejudices and because of their judgmental spirits and their lack of mercy toward the down-and-outers of society and their own preconceived unbiblical ideas and, of course, their own self-righteous attitudes, they dismissed all of his incredible words and his irrefutable miracles, and they ignored the magnitude of Messianic scripture, you know, Old Testament Messianic scripture that talked about the Messiah, which was increasingly piling up to confirm that he was indeed the long awaited Messiah. They disregarded all that, and instead, they excused their rejection of Christ at least in this latest situation, by way of the type of people with whom he associated. You know, the people with whom he fellowshiped and feasted. And do people today use this very same excuse? They do all the time. This is nothing new. You hear people um, say, well, if she's a Christian, I don't want to have anything to do with Christians, and we are peculiar people. I mean, just look around. Some of us are peculiar. <laughs> but who did He come? Who did he come to save? Peculiar people, sinners. <laughs> the Lord's perfectly logical and even biblical response to those religious leaders, it, it is precisely those who are sick, who are in need of a physician. Right? I mean, it was very, very logical response to them. And so why on earth wouldn't he, the great physician, go to those people who are sinners? He's the one who can cure man's soul and the one who has the, the eternal cure for the sin disease. That response silenced his critics. I mean, we didn't hear them say anything in response to that. But they were only silenced for a short while until they could find an, another excuse and we find here in today's lesson that they very quickly changed gears and found yet another excuse for their willful rejection of him. This time, however, instead of finding fault with the fact that, uh, about his feasting activities, you know, who he feasted with, what are they criticizing? His fasting abstinence. You know, always looking for something. Now, before we get further into this uh, fasting situation... We need to understand that the complaint of the Jews, and when I say the Jews, I'm speaking about the religious rulers, okay? Their complaint, which apparently they made sure was spread throughout all of Israel because it also reached the ears of John the Baptist's disciples. The complaint was with regard to their own man-made laws, you know, the traditions of the Jews that had developed over the years. The Lord Jesus, and I want to make this perfectly clear as we get into this lesson up front, you need to understand that he never, ever did anything to violate or contradict God's laws, you know, regarding fasting or regarding any other matter. What he, um, what he contradicts is always man's laws. You see, it had become the, the custom, it had become the tradition under rabbinical teaching for the Jews to fast two days a week. Now, most commentaries said those two days were Mondays and Thursdays, although I read one that said it was Mondays and Fridays. It doesn't really matter. They had made it, uh, the overlords of Israel had made it mandatory. It had become a mandatory tradition that the people fast two days a week, whichever those two days were. And they did this until really fasting had become a burden to the people rather than what it should have been, a blessing. It had also become a meritorious deed of which uh, men, such as the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees, could boast. When Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, which, Lord willing, we will get to this year, before the year is over, the Lord Jesus would strongly warn the people of Israel against such boastful, hypocritical fasting, which was practiced by so many of the supposed spiritual leaders of the nation. He said, this is in Matthew 6:16. 6, he said, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. So when the religious rulers were fasting, what would they do? They would go around with these long faces, you know, and everybody would say, oh, he's so pious. Yeah, they were making a big to-do about it so that people would praise them for being so spiritual that, oh, look, he's fasting. And so he said, don't be hypocritical like them. That kind of fasting was for the praise of men. It was to appear pious before other people. Um, So that kind of fasting, as well as routine forced fasting, you know, fasting that was made mandatory, that only served really to obscure the true meaning. It hid the true meaning of fasting, you know, the original meaning that God had for it. And it really was an insult to God, this kind of fasting. I remember growing up in, in the church in which I grew. It was mandatory that we fast, Every Friday from certain foods. And then during a period called Lent, we could not eat any meat or dairy products every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. It was mandatory forced fasting. It didn't get me any closer to the Lord. I didn't like doing it. I didn't do it with the right attitude or the right spirit. So it was really an insult to God. The Mosaic law really only required one fast a year. And that was on the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur, which we, the Jewish people just celebrated this month. It was a day in which Israel was to humbly confess her sins before God and repent of them. So fasting, as God had originally intended, was a sign of deep, deep penitence, you know, a repentance of sin. Now there are, of course, cases of men in the Old Testament who did fast, on other days than the Day of Atonement. Uh, But they did so of their own free will when they fasted. They didn't fast because it was made mandatory that they fast every Monday and Thursday. Um, They did it, and of course they didn't do it as a means to show off how pious they were either. Fasting is something that should happen naturally from a broken or a contrite or a grieving heart. Fasting is something that that may come from a very needy heart. You know, you may decide to fast because you really need to know the will of God in a particular situation. Um, As David, remember, David fasted when he uh, he was brokenhearted and he was praying and fasting to God that God would spare his newborn little son. Fasting, which is nothing more than a shallow ritual, or fasting that is performed apart from a, a deep spiritual seeking, you know, to know the, the Lord's will, or from a contrite brokenness—that's just really meaningless fasting. And as I said, it's really an affront to God. Nonetheless, this is exactly what was happening in Israel by the time of Jesus Christ. Fasting was made mandatory by the traditions of of the. Uh, Rabbis. And a person was not considered a, a good Jew, quote unquote, good. Because as it is written, everybody, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. That's the four Roman nuns. <laughs> Uh, so uh let's see where was they okay it, they were not considered a good jew unless they fasted two days a week and i had a picture up there remember the parable of the the pharisee and the publican and that pharisee was bragging to god about how good he was because he said i i uh, i fast two days a week you just saw the picture up here So both the young disciples of the Pharisees, when it talks here about uh, the Pharisees, it's talking really about the disciples of the Pharisees. The young disciples of the Pharisees and also the young disciples of John the Baptist became aware of the fact that Jesus and his disciples did not observe the Jewish traditional fast days. And Matthew tells us over in his account. By the way, this same account is found in Matthew and also in Luke. Matthew tells us that the disciples of the Baptist, who were concerned about this matter, at least to their credit, instead of murmuring in secret over the issue, you know, like these um, the scribes and the Pharisees tended to do, they came straight to Jesus with their inquiry, you know, from him why he had. Uh, he and his disciples did not fast and that's the right way to do things you know take if you have an issue with somebody or if you have a question about something rather than running to your friends and, and gossiping about it and, and wondering and spreading rumors what are you to do if you have a question about why is so, if, if I'm doing something and you have a problem with it don't talk to everybody else about it instead of coming directly to me and that's the best way to resolve an issue and that's what these disciples of John the Baptist did. Now, the disciples of the Pharisees didn't, but the Baptist disciples did. Now, the Baptist disciples at this point in time were a confused group of men. Remember, the Baptist, John the Baptist himself, was no longer with them. Where is John the Baptist at this point? He's in prison because he had condemned Herod Antipas's marriage to his brother's wife and so he was thrown in prison and so these disciples of john were kind of in a limbo situation they were between john they didn't have john with them anymore so they and they and they weren't with jesus right so they're sort of caught up in a limbo situation john remember was an old testament kind of prophet and john probably fasted now, I don't know that he cared about the, the traditions of the Jews and fasted on Mondays and Thursdays, but I'm sure he fasted because of a needy broken heart for the nation of Israel and other reasons. He fasted the right way, but he would have, you know, told his disciples about or taught them through through his own example that, that fasting was good. And fasting is good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just when it's mandatory or to show off to, to men. But... Um, and we know the Baptist didn't eat too much. I think he always fasted. All he ate was locusts and honey. <laughs> That'd be fasting to me. So they were, these disciples of John were um, in between allegiance to the herald of the Messiah and the Messiah himself. They were confused, probably. They were confused about the traditional Jewish regulations and now the new ways of Christ and the new things that he was introducing. Uh, they were really what we could say, they were caught up between truth and uh, tradition and truth. Are a lot of people caught up between tradition and truth? Yeah. You know what? Probably every one of us in this room has some little hang-ups about that. And some of us have blinders, and we don't even know a lot of things we are doing are just totally because of tradition. And sometimes they even contradict truth. But they were hung up between truth and tradition. Um, Because the Baptists now had declared that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, he had referred to him as the Lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sins of the world. These disciples, like Andrew and John, really should have been with who? They really should have been with Jesus because John the Baptist, the one they were following, had said, He is the Messiah. But for some reason, they hung around, they stayed with John, and even though John's in prison, they're still not following Jesus. But maybe after they came to the Lord with this question about his fasting situation, and he answered their question, i like to think that maybe they stayed with him, or at least some of them maybe stayed with him after this. But anyway, to their credit, they did bring their question to the right source. They went to him just like honest friends should do, when they have a problem that needs solving. And they gave him an opportunity to explain why he did not require his disciples to fast. Now, did the Lord himself fast? Do you think he fasted because the Jews wanted him to fast on Mondays and Thursdays? No. But we know the Lord fasted, don't we? When did he, one time we've already looked at, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, in the Lord's response, he, as he often did, He used, first of all, figurative language when we hear him talk about the bridegroom and the children of the bridechamber. He used figurative language, and then he also, in his response to them, used two parables. And as was also his common practice, he began his answer to their question with (laughs) a question of his own. He just does this all the time. So they had asked, why do we and the Pharisees fast off? or often, but thy disciples fast not. That's how it's worded over in Matthew 9:14. And then he asked, can the children of the bride chamber mourn, and the other account says fast, as long as the bridegroom is with them? Here the Lord, uh, first of all, used a metaphor of a bridegroom to speak of himself. And that is something that would have been familiar to John the Baptist's disciples, remember, because John the Baptist had done this very same thing earlier. Over in John 3.29, he referred to Jesus as the bridegroom, and he referred to himself as the friend of the bridegroom. So John's disciples would have understood this figurative language. They would have understood that Jesus was the bridegroom of whom he was speaking here. And who do you think the children of the bride chamber were? Well, that was a reference to his disciples. It's really also a reference to um, the wedding guests. You know, he's speaking here about a wedding. And so the children of the bride chamber was a reference to wedding guests. So he was reminding them of the common logical knowledge that nobody expects the guests at a wedding uh, to fast. Now, I've got a wedding coming up April 30th. Now, it would be great if the wedding guests would fast. I could save, could save a lot of money that way. <laughs> but that's not, yeah, nobody does that, you know. You, maybe if you go to a funeral, you might, well, we don't, Christians never fast at any kind of fellowship, do we? <laughs> but you don't expect fasting at a wedding. He, the bridegroom, had come, as John the Baptist also knew and had preached, he had come to offer the kingdom you know it was at hand because the bridegroom had come had arrived you know the kingdom and here i'm speaking about the literal 1000 millennial kingdom the literal on earth kingdom the kingdom in the scripture is often compared with a wedding feast so it was at hand the bridegroom had arrived so the wedding feast was at hand the message of the coming of the kingdom, is is that a sad message? No, it's a joyous message. It's a glorious message. It's a message of, of hope and of peace on earth, finally. It, it's a message of grace and a message of forgiveness of sin. It's a message which should cause, just like at a wedding, great rejoicing. It's not a time for fasting or for mourning. It would have been inappropriate to fast for those like the disciples of, the, of Christ who had accepted by their faith in him, they had accepted his divine invitation, you know, into the kingdom. In other words, if I send out, and by the way, you're all invited to the wedding on April 30th, please, I'm inviting you right now. <laughs> it would it would have been inappropriate for those who had accepted that invitation to come to the wedding feast for them to to mourn and and to be um, fasting. You see, even sincere fasting would have been out of place and inappropriate when the bridegroom himself was present and the kingdom was genuinely being offered. However, what did the Lord go on to say? He went on to say that there was a time that was coming when fasting would be appropriate, and that day would be when the bridegroom was taken away from them i don't know is that in mark's account i know it's in math okay at verse 20 okay mark 220 when the did jesus know that he was going to be taken away did the, jesus know about his upcoming death yes. yes he sir. even we know that as far back as um really when he was 12 and he had to be about his father's business but at the the first miracle he performed when he turned water into wine um, and his mother said, they have, they have no wine. They've run out of wine. And he said, my hour has not yet come. He knows all along that he's headed toward a cross. Now, if you were at a wedding and all of a sudden the bridegroom upped and left the wedding, okay, big time for mourning and fasting. <laughs> that would be devastating. So anyway, this early we find the Lord Jesus did know of his coming rejection and, uh, of course, of his death. So when he was no longer with his own, then it would be a time to mourn and fast. And then fasting should be really what it always should have been, and that is the the deep, sincere expression of sorrowful, penitent hearts and or needy hearts. It should be a a spontaneous desire on the part of true worshipers of God and not something which is imposed upon them by ecclesiastical leaders or dictatorial religionists now notice in this that the lord one of my commentaries said this and i thought it was interesting enough to share with you because i hadn't really thought about it before but the lord is always looking ahead throughout his ministry he's always looking ahead he sees the joy that was before him you know he knows what's coming up with his death but even on the cross he looked ahead to the joy that was before him when he would uh, be back in heaven with his father and, and his church would be built. But he was looking ahead here to the cross. And he was looking ahead to the age of grace and, and, and the wedding feast. He was looking ahead. While what were the religious rulers always doing? In contrast, they were always looking back. They're always looking back at Mount Sinai. And they're always looking back at the law. And their, and their bondage to their own legalistic traditions. What does it say in Philippians 3.13? What did Paul say? He said, I count not myself to apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are ahead, I pressed for the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. As Christians, what should we be doing You know, to motivate us the most. Looking back or looking forward? Looking ahead. And we have so much to look forward to, don't we? I mean, it's good to remember where we came from, but not to dwell on it, you know. But press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Run the race to the finish line. And look ahead to, I mean, the Lord could come at any one moment in time, and we don't want to be caught ashamed. And what have we got waiting for us in heaven? I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered in the heart of man the things which God hath prepared, prepared for them that love him. So I think I just answered one of your questions. Now, next, John gave the, the Lord gave John's disciples, and I'm sure his own disciples were listening to all of this. He gave them two illustrations in parable form And uh, in that culture back in those days, these parables would have been pretty easy to understand. They were the parable of the new cloth patch and the parable of the new wine pouch. Let's begin by looking at, first of all, the new cloth patch parable interesting i didn't notice until i had already gotten dressed this morning and i raised my hands to fix my hair and i have a big huge hole <laughs> and i thought isn't that appropriate i need look at that i need a patch so maybe <laughs> all right new cloth patch parable and we'll read mark 2 21. The Lord goes on and he says, No man can sew a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filled it up taketh away from the old. That means uh, pulls away or or puckers up away from, from the old. And the rent or the tear is made worse. Okay? This is, if you're taking notes on this sort of thing, the very first parable. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we know he speaks many parables throughout his ministry. It was one of the uh, the messianic credentials. It even tells us in the Old Testament that the Messiah would speak in parables. So again, this is another proof who he is. All right, this is the very first of his recorded parables. And he used the common example of a new piece of fabric. Now, in those days, they used mostly wool and linen. Do those two particular types of fabric shrink? Yes, they do. Uh, So he's talking about a new piece of fabric, in other words, a patch being sewn onto an old garment. Now, to patch an old garment, all of you seamstresses, you know this sort of thing, to patch an old garment with a new, unshrunk piece of cloth, especially if it was wool or linen, would be foolish. I mean, no one who, who, unless they were ignorant about fabrics, no one would do this. Well, because as soon as you threw that garment into the washing machine or as soon as it became wet, the patch, if it hadn't been shrunk, pre-shrunk, that patch would just pucker up. It would, it would take away. It would shrink or, or you know, pull away from the material of the old garment. And the rent or the, the tear would be even worse than it had be, been in the beginning. Does that make sense to all of you? All right, so that's, that's what he's saying here. Now, the Lord was using the old garment of this parable symbolically to refer to traditional Phariseeism. It was a worn out garment that had become useless because it had this tear in it. Um, Jesus had not come to try to patch up the old and dissatisfactory garment of Jewish practices and traditions. By uh, adding to them, patching, superimposing over them pieces of his his new faith, or his new ideas of faith. In other words, he was not offering Israel something, oops, something that he could uh, that could be superimposed over Pharisaical legalism and traditionalism in order to reform it. He had not come to reform or to repair an old system. You know, if somebody says to you, Jesus was a reformer. That's not accurate. He was not a reformer. He was not a repairer. He was not a, um, a, a revolutionary. He was a re-creator. He was a redeemer. What does it? He really came to give Israel and the world something new. It says in is it first Corinthians five seventeen? If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. You know, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. He's a recreator he is the creator, and when he came the second time, he is a recreator. He created us physically to begin with, and when he comes into our hearts in the new birth, he recreates us. Therefore, his point with regard to fasting is, is this. Why should the followers of the new copy or emulate the slaves of the old? True, you know, there would come a time for fasting again. But it would be, as we said, it would be voluntary. And it would not be begotten by the commands of of men's interpretation of the law, but by an inner desire to better know the Lord and his will. All right, we'll be touching on this a little bit more, but let's go on and look at the second parable, which is the parable of the new wine pouch. And for this, we look at the next verse, 22. He went on after he talked about the garment and a patch, and he said, And no man putteth new wine into old bottles or wineskins, else the new wine doth burst the bottles and the wine is spilled now don't think of glass bottles because it's really wine skins all right? and the bottles will be marred but new wine must be put into new bottles alright to reemphasize the same principle Jesus that he had said in the first parable here Jesus immediately presented a second parable I'm getting ahead of myself with my pictures. Let me put this back up. All right, this time, however, he used the example of wineskin pouches. I had one at home, and I forgot to bring it. But uh, he, they're referred to as bottles, but they're not glass bottles, so just totally get that out of your mind. Uh, wine or water back in those days was stored not in bottles it was stored in, in skin pouches. And, and mainly those skins were made out of the skins of sheep or goats, but primarily goat skin, goat skin pouches. Now, because an old wineskin would have lost a lot of its elasticity, it, it was understood among the people of that time, they would have no problem understanding this parable, that you did not store new wine in old wineskins. Why? Well because if that grape juice was left in that old wineskin for any length of time or if it was out in the heat somewhere it would begin to the, the grape juice would begin to expand in fermentation and the gas that it would generate would exert pressure on that old inflexible unyielding wineskin and what would happen it would burst or at least it would crack Actually, the one I have at home is so old it is cracked. It would have been great if I could have brought it. I think my husband got it in Portugal or somewhere. But if it cracked, what would happen? The wine, the juice inside would spill out and it would be lost. So obviously new wine was most sensibly and appropriately put in new wineskins because new wineskins were still flexible. They still had their elasticity. So the Lord again was saying that he was introducing something that had to be entirely separated from the old. The new wine of his... And what does wine in the scripture symbolically speak of? Joy. Okay, The new wine of his joyous, free salvation and and grace could not be confined to the old skins of Pharisaic traditionalism and legalism. The gospel message could not be connected to the old system, and that's what we basically hear about in the patch parable. It couldn't be connected to the old system, nor could it be contained in the new system, which is the wine pouch parable. parable. <laughs> parable. The old system, which was taught and propagated by, of course, the scribes and, and Pharisees primarily, that old system was outdated. And and it was worthless. They had so turned and twisted and and reinterpreted and added to and subtracted from the God-inspired Mosaic law and the, the teaching of the rest of the Old Testament scripture that rather than trying to patch up things or trying to mix his truth with their error, Jesus began afresh. Now, of course, as I said before, he did not come to destroy the law. He didn't come to destroy God's law, but to fulfill it. And he says that in Matthew 5:17. But he would need to reeducate the people as to what God had originally said and what God's original intention was. And that's, of course, what we will see over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, ye have heard it said of old, but I say unto you. So he purposely, he purposely was putting an inseparable gulf. You know, you say, why is he always irritating the religious rulers? Well, he's doing it purposely. He is putting a gulf between himself and their Pharisaic Judaism. He would tell the people, again, this will be in the Sermon on the Mount, that except their righteousness would exceed the righteousness of the scribes. And the Pharisees, they would in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So Christ's point in in his two parables here was that his ministry and his message would neither be connected to nor contained within the Pharisaical, self righteous, external, legalistic system of traditional Judaism. Now, of course, he already knew that the response of the religious cr- what the re- response of the religious crowd would be to this. Um, which is why in Luke 5:39, he predicted their response. And you don't see this in Mark, but if you go over to Luke 5:39, he said, "No man I have a picture of that here, wait a minute. He said, "No man also having drunk of wine, straightway desireth new, for he saith, "The old is better." The religious rulers of Israel were very content with the old wine. They were old wineskins and they were very content with the old wine. They were very content with the status quo, with the old system. Why do you think they were so content with it? Because it gave them the power and the prestige over the people that they so loved. So they had no desire to change, even if their own hearts were convicted and even convinced that the individual who was offering them the new wine of joy and true forgiveness and the abundant life and eternal life was the Messiah himself. And I think many of them were inwardly convicted about who he was, but they did not want, they didn't even want to change. They liked the way things were with them having so much power over the people. Now, by the way, Jesus understood that he needed new men for the new message. He needed new wineskins. He needed new vessels uh, that could take his new message and spread it throughout the old world. If he had chosen to put the new message into old wineskins, you know, let's say the gospel message, if he put that into old wineskins, the scribes and the Pharisees, Their old, inflexible attitudes would have torn apart the whole project. They would sour, taint, and spoil the sweetness of the new wine of the gospel, and it would eventually disappear. The new wine of the gospel message, you see, could not be entrusted to these old, worn-out, washed-out, inflexible, Pharisees, scribes and Sadducees and the other religious rulers. Were they inflexible? Were they ready to accept a man like Levi into the kingdom or, or a, a, a woman like Mary Magdalene who'd been possessed of seven demons? They were totally inflexible. So you see how this is such a beautiful parable here. So rather he would take the new wine of his new message and it would be entrusted to new vessels New wineskin, new bottles. It it was necessary for the Lord Jesus to store the gospel in new men, and this is why he, he bypassed all of the officials in Jerusalem. Did he call any of them to be his disciples or his apostles? No. This is why he bypassed all the priests in the temple. And where did he go instead? To fishermen up in Galilee? Uneducated fishermen? And where else did he go? To a publican? He was looking for new wineskins to put his new message. Men who were flexible. They had a little hard time with some of the things, but they were willing to expand, weren't they? The church of Jesus Christ would take his his joyous gospel message to the ends of the earth, and people everywhere from all backgrounds and from all walks of life Uh, sinners of all types would be able to rejoice the dynamic explosive expanding message of the gospel could not be put into cold calculating unbending judgmental self-righteous vessels or they would burst and the message would be lost it needed new vessels it needed new men and new women to carry it to the whole world and it is interesting that on the day of Pentecost, when some of those new vessels began to preach the gospel message and the power of the Holy Spirit for the first time, that those watching these new vessels, full of joy over the new wine, complained. And what did they say? These men are full of new wine. <laughs> you see that in a new light now? It, actually, they were right. They weren't drunk. But they were full of new wine. And their joy was just showing all over the place so much that, you know, what did Jesus come here for? Did he come here to make us sourpusses? No. Because he lives, we can live also. Isn't that the greatest news there is? Rejoice. And again, I say unto you, what? Rejoice. He said he came that our joy might be fulfilled. He said over and over again, be of good cheer. We, you know, of all people, we have so much to be thankful for. What was the very first miracle the Lord ever performed? It's a a picture of just this very same thing. Israel under the old system had lost her joy. That's why Mary, his mother, said they have no wine. They had run out of joy. Jesus came to give new joy. And when he gives it, he gives it right to the brim, even overflowing. Remember those water pots were filled to the very brim. So the first miracle he performed sent this very same message that the water of his word miraculously turns to joy. Now on a practical level for us, we must understand then that Christ is not to be mixed or mismatched with other systems. He will not be patched onto or mixed with some other system. For example... It is not acceptable to try to mix law and grace. The gospel, I can't get that quite all on there, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is not something to be added to the law. It is not an improvement of the law or even a remodeling of the law. This, you see, is exactly what was the problem with the church of Galatia. ...were attempting to to work the law and grace together. And that's why the Apostle Paul had to write the book of Galatians. He had to admonish them about this. The the leaders and the members, some of the members of that church, were attempting to bring together Judaism and Christianity. They were holding on to such practices from the law as circumcision. And they were in trying, trying to impose on all new believers, even if they were Gentiles, circumcision. They were saying, well, you can be saved by Christ, but you also have to be circumcised. So it's, it, it's faith in Christ plus a work, you see. Going, and that's why Paul said, be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You know, we're set free from, we have liberties in Christ. We don't have to go back under the bondage of the law. And uh, and yet they were also not only were they embracing um, Christ, but saying people had to be circumcised. But they were also embracing baptism. So you had to be, you also had to be baptized. They got that picture, but they were still adding other things. And then we and these people were called Judaizers. The Judaizers, Paul had a terrible time with them. Um, they were also trying to impose old kosher eating habits on the people. You know, you still you still can't eat. Um, bacon and you can't do this and you can't do that they were still you know entangled with the law they endeavored to keep alive so many aspects of the law and the jewish ceremonies and the ordinances and and to mingle them together with the gospel of christ they what what they were really trying to do is put new wine into old wineskins. And how many millions of people today still do exactly the same thing? Uh, There's many examples, but let me just talk about a few of them. How many millions of people still go to priests for the confession of their sins when the entire concept of an Old Testament priesthood is done away with? Any system that still has a priesthood or some kind of ecclesiastical hierarchy, is Old Testament. That's done and, and over with. It's gone. That's trying to put new wine into old wineskins. All true believers today are priests. We are a royal priesthood. And uh, there's no need for, a, uh, for priests to intercede between God and man. Who is our one and only high priest? the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is our, the one mediator between God and man. There's no need for, um, for any more sacrifices. We don't have to go to a temple and offer sacrifices. Christ died once for all. So no priests are necessary to take our sacrifices and put them on the altar. There, there, and there should be no re-sacrificing of the Lord Jesus Christ in uh in the mass which is done whenever there is a mass performed it is and according to the roman catholic and the greek orthodox that's actually in their writing that every time a mass is performed it is the re-sacrificing of jesus christ when you see a crucifix and it holds jesus christ on the cross that is the re-sacrificing of Jesus Christ. He died once for all. He's not on that cross anymore. I've got good news for you. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. We don't have to go. We don't have to pray through anybody. You don't have to pray through some saint. You don't have to pray through Mary. You shouldn't do that. It's not biblical. You won't find it in the Bible. We can go boldly into the, the, before the throne of grace ourselves. As, as uh, Scott said in his opening prayer, the, the veil was rent. You know, if you go into a church where only the priest is allowed in the back, in the Holy of Holies, what is that? Old Testament. It's, that's putting trying to put new wine into an old wineskin. And um, also, millions of people are simply are trying to put Christ into even uh, pagan wineskins. You know, just look around at so much that goes on in the name of Christ, which is really borrowed from paganism. And you know, I got news for you. Even Protestant churches have a lot of stuff that we do that really comes from paganism um, feasts, holidays, uh, ceremonies, um, statues that you'll find in some churches, uh, vestments, the, the garments that the priests wear, and um, headgear. The headgear comes from paganism, incense burning. Um, you know, and missionaries, a lot of missionaries face these problems all the time from the, the natives that they minister to because those natives think oftentimes that, that the gospel and Christ are another part of religion that they can add on to or mix with their religion, their, their form of uh, paganism or what, whatever religion they have. Hindus, for example... Um, You might witness to a Hindu who worships many gods, some 300 million gods, they say, and you talk to him about Christ, and a lot of times you'll, oh, you'll be so excited because they'll say, yeah, okay. And what they're really doing is just adding Christ as another one of their many gods to worship. They don't understand. You have to make it very clear with someone like that that he is not simply another god. He is the only god. He cannot be added to an old garment nor mixed with mixed in an old wineskin. And Christians also try to do this. They try to mix Christ with the world. And this mixture just simply does not work. No man can serve two masters. Christ will not be unequally yoked with belial. Uh, he cannot be Christ cannot be patched over a world view. And how many people in churches do this? They live for the world all week long, and then they try to patch Christ on on Sundays. You can't do that. I could go on and on, but I'm out of time. Well, the leaders of the old, worn-out way of traditional Judaism did not like the new wine. And so what did they say? The old is better. The old is better. And because they willfully determined that they would hold on to their old system they really had only one choice. They had to oppose and they had to seek to eliminate the one who was offering the new wine. And in order to do this, they needed a really good excuse. Now, they've had all kinds of excuses, but they, uh, they tried feasting. You know, that he feasted with the wrong kind of people, and here they tried fasting. They'd have already accused him of blasphemy, and he came from the wrong place. He came from Nazareth. He, 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 just all kinds of excuses they came up with. But the one they seemed to cling to the most was the one that he presented to them on a platter. He said, you're looking for an excuse? Here it is. And uh, that's what we're going to look at starting next week as we look at him healing a man who had laid as an invalid for 38 years at the Pool of Bethesda. And, oh, naughty, naughty, what day of the week did he heal him on? Their Sabbath. And that's the excuse they really, really clung to. Thank you. Let's close in a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, that Jesus is not only the physician who gives spiritual health, to sick sinners, but that he's also the bridegroom who gives spiritual joy. Thank you, Father, that he is, oh, he just came to make our joy so full. Like John the Baptist said, he said, now my joy has been fulfilled. That he, thank you, Father, that he's not a renovator of Moses, that he's not a reformer or, or even a revolutionary, but that Jesus is a recreator. He's our redeemer. He takes old things and he makes them brand new. And he makes those old things pass away. And he fills us to the very brim with the new wine of his joy. Father, thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to look with eager hearts for his coming. We love you. I pray now that you'll protect each woman as she travels in the the rain back home and bring us all back together safely.